You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my co-host for this season, Shannon Hopkins. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Lisa. Our theme for this season is Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, and we have invited leaders to help us paint a robust picture of our current reality by sharing with us their perspective from the work that they are actively engaged in. So we've talked about everything from ambiguous loss and the myth of closure to uh, the challenges universities are facing today and the accelerating age and what it means for the church and so much more. And more is yet to come. So keep tuning in. So the point is, as different as these leaders and conversations have been, each of our guests has named as part of the reality they are facing in their context, as part of the reality we are facing as a country and even as a church, is polarization. Our guest today, James Tallarico, says it more plainly than others, perhaps. He says that polarization is the challenge of our time. And as a state representative, in many ways, his every day is dealing with and navigating the polarization that has come to dominate so much of the politics in our country. And of course, polarization has become significant in our churches, too. We will talk about that with James who some have said is an aspiring preacher because he is still actively enrolled in seminary at Austin Presbyterian Seminary and not yet a graduate or an ordinand. But as you will pick up on, he articulates his faith beautifully and profoundly. And you will likely agree with us that we can remove the aspiring adjective and just call him a preacher. We recognize that in this era of polarization, even having an elected politician on our podcast is a bit of a risk. We know we will not all agree with everything James says, and we know that's true of all our guests, actually. So we're grateful for the ways that you, our listeners, reach out to us to share your thoughts, and we are committed to listening and responding in ways that are open-minded and life-giving, because ultimately this is all about relationship, the way forward through polarization, as James articulates and demonstrates, is never losing sight of the fact that we are each beloved children of God. So with that, Shannon, what stood out to you in our conversation with James? Oh my gosh, Lisa so much stood out. This was a richer conversation than I could have imagined. Um, A few of the things, I mean, the way he talked about to be like Christ is to love neighbor and neighbor, specifically the person who might be labeled other and different from you, uh, you know, and just, and then how he's enacting that in his daily life as he navigates um, the space is in and between church and faith. And then the way he talks about friendship and his friendship agenda. And, you know, that really encouraged and spoke to me when he talked about how how we really take for granted, like the depth of, of friendship and allyship and how we need to talk about that more. And I know you've, you know, already there's been a whole season about friendship, but I love the right. way he brought a new 
a new way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and connected it so deeply to this understanding that, you know, whether you're talking about your neighbor or you're talking about a friend, you're not just talking about the folks that agree with you and that you um, spend time with all the time, but, but in the deepest sense of the gospel call, it's the person who, as you said, is, is you you might label other or who is different Mm -hmm. or doesn't always agree. And yeah, deep, rich, right? And then yes, right. Deep. The other thing that really stood out for me is how deeply guided by his faith he is, yes. and also just how how deeply rooted and formed he is. This isn't just he started going to seminary. It's right. you know the way he reaches back and talks about his grandparents and you know how he was raised, but also his ongoing continual formation. I I thought there was just so much. I felt like we could have talked to him for hours. Yeah. And didn't you feel a bit like we'd gone to church in in the best way that I mean that, right? Right. In the very best way. Uh, Yeah. So let's listen to our conversation with James. James, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. We are so excited. We've really been looking forward to having this conversation with you. And our season is all about exploring the theme of facing reality and claiming leadership. And we've had conversations with leaders from uh, various sectors of society, if you will, to share their perspective with us. So think in terms of preachers and uh, university presidents and executive directors and authors and theologians and and such. And and in some ways, they are all politicians, (laughs) but really you are the very first elected politician that we've had with us. And so we thought of you because of an article written about you by Adam Wren um, in June of 23, and we'll link it in our show notes. But the article highlights your faith and and the first few words he used to describe you, he said, he described you as the representative and aspiring preacher. And so we want to start really with your story and how did you come to be a representative and an aspiring preacher? Well, uh, thanks again for, for having me on here. And it's really an honor to, to be joining y'all and having this conversation. Uh, my granddad was a Baptist preacher in South Texas, uh, and I still attend the same church that I was baptized in when I was two years old. It happens to be a Presbyterian okay. church uh, here in, in Round Rock, Texas, just, just north of Austin. And now I'm uh, a seminary student studying to become a minister myself. So my faith is, is the most important thing to me, and okay. it's, it's what underpins all the work I do, whether as a public school teacher in San Antonio ISD, a nonprofit leader here in Central Texas, or as a member of the Texas House. Uh, everything yeah. comes back to, to my faith and the call to love God and, and love neighbor. And, and, you know, my granddad used to tell me that we, we follow a barefoot rabbi who gave those two simple commandments to love God and love neighbor. And in many ways, being a seminary student and being a politician are just two ways that, that I'm able to, to fulfill that, that call. Um, you know, we, we, have mm-hmm. to, uh, we have to have both, right? It's, it's really hard in our modern political system to love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes. And when you do, it can become 
exhausting and, uh, and it's hard to sustain. And that's why I think we have that first commandment to love God, to love the, the, the mystery that all of our neighbors are expressions of. And so going to seminary and working here in the Capitol are just the two ways that, that I try to, to, to follow those two simple commandments uh, in my own life. And it, it's not easy. It's a balance between the two, but you need both in my experience to, to follow Jesus Christ in the way that we're called to do. Oh, it's beautiful to hear you speak that way and to know that you are serving your community in the ways that you are and coming out of that place of deep faith. It is, it's beautiful and inspiring. And and there's so much that you have just said in those, um, in those few words that I I hope that we get a chance to pull on. And um, one of those is, I mean, just the reality of what you just said, like you're still taking classes um, in seminary and you're in the legislature, like you're balancing so many things. So, so first of all, thank you for, for saying yes to being with us. We're very excited about that. Um, but I'm curious if there's anything lately that you're learning in seminary, clearly you were formed in the faith and it and that formation is guiding you and leading you in everything that you're doing. And But I'm curious if you're learning anything in the classroom and seminary that's impacting your work as a representative. Oh, so many things. Um, you know, the, the article that you mentioned by mm-hmm. Adam Wren uh, had a great description. He followed me around for, for a, of a typical day as a seminary student and as a legislator. And in that article, he wrote that I was literally navigating the space between church and state uh, as I drove the, the seven <laughs> minutes from the seminary to the state capitol. Uh, and and so it's it's really a fascinating um, push and pull between these two spheres. You know, my, my faith is what um, uh, informs and, and challenges my politics, and then my politics informs and challenges my faith. There's a conversation between both of those things, um, you know, seminary and 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 my my home church is where I, along with my fellow congregants and, and fellow students, fellow believers, it's where we dream of what the world could be. And then when I get to the Capitol every morning, I have to work on, you know, what the world can be. And there's a difference between could and can, right? Um, I, I very much here at the Capitol am, am seeing the world from the weeds, um, you know what's what's immediately possible given the political constraints. What you know, how can I move the ball, you know, five yards at a time to to make a change in people's lives? But seminary and church is where I can see the world from the mountaintop and and dream of something that's beyond current political constraints. And and those two things are necessary because it's it's really hard to get lost in the weeds. It's also easy to get lost on the mountaintop. Um, and, and I know people who get lost in both of those two spheres. And, and so doing both of these things is a way for me to balance out those two visions, um, and, and be able to change my community and my state and my country for the better. But, you know, in a very tangible, practical sense, you know, I, I just got back from, I'm speaking to you from the state Capitol, from my office in the, mm-hmm. the bottom of the basement. I'm a, I'm a young, <laughs> uh, young member. And so I, I don't have much seniority. So I'm literally three stories underground as I speak to you right now. Um, and, but I just came from class, uh, uh, about half an hour ago, I'm taking a January, uh, term course 
about love in the Hebrew Bible and and the, the ways in which God expresses uh, God's love for us and we express our love for God in community in in that um, in that covenant. And to me, that's a perfect expression of what democracy is in 21st century mm-hmm. America, right? Democracy God, is, yeah. not, is not a constitution, it's a covenant. It's a way mm-hmm. of, of uh, it's a relationship between neighbors. And the scary part is that we have some of our neighbors who are, who are violating that covenant that we have with one another, God, right? With every stormed capital step, um, you know, with with every uh, violation of our of our constitution, we are uh, weakening those bonds between um, ourselves and our neighbors. And so, I, I find inspiration, especially in in the Hebrew text of of how we sustain that covenant, that bond, that love between neighbors um, throughout through struggle and strife, and um, and that takes on a very real. A real meaning when you come to a place like the Texas Capitol. There's so much um, just depth and richness, and you made me even think about democracy in a new way. I honestly don't think I've thought about democracy as a covenant before. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. just thank you for that. But it is an unusual choice, right, to uh, for a politician to go to seminary, <laughs> like to go after a <laughs> seminary degree instead of an MBA or a law degree. I'd love to know. Um, yeah, just how you think about just to go further into the value that the seminary education, yeah. why you've gone for that. I mean, I know it's personal because you've talked about your sense yeah. of call, but yeah, just what the value for other people in other professions thinking about the value of a seminary education. Yeah, such a good question. Um, you know, political campaign consultants don't usually advise their clients to become Presbyterian ministers. That's, that's not, the, <laughs> yeah. not the typical path, uh, path forward for a politician. But, uh, you know, honestly, my, I grew up in, a, in a, um, a very politically active church. And I don't mean that in a partisan sense. I mean that in, um, in terms of activism, right? That my, my pastor, Dr. Jim Rigby, when I was growing up, always taught us that our faith has to move us from the sanctuary to the streets, that our, our, our love for God and for neighbor has to grow into justice, which is just love out in public. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, my first political protest that I ever went to um, was in, when I was in fourth grade, and it was with my church. It was with my fellow congregants. It was outside the governor's mansion. Um, George W. Bush was the governor of Texas at the time, and it was a protest calling for hate crimes legislation. This was in the wake of the murder of, of Matthew Shepard and, and James Byrd. And we were calling on the governor to enact legislation that would prevent and respond to these types of, um, of hate, hate motivated crimes. And, and then I went to protest against the Iraq war. Um, I went to, to protest for women's rights and reproductive rights, all with my my fellow church members. So my faith was always pointing me toward politics, toward activism, uh, toward service. But after five years now of doing policymaking and doing politics professionally here at the Texas Capitol, I, my politics has started to point me back toward faith. Um, I've, I've really come to believe that so many of our problems, political problems, social problems, ecological problems, 
are, are, are rooted in a spiritual crisis, an inability to love ourselves, love our neighbors, love our planet. Mm. And so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to learn more about this spiritual crisis and wanted to learn how we could respond to it. Y'all, y'all know better than I do that so many of our spiritual institutions are deeply broken <laughs> at this point in time. And so I wanted to learn more about that problem and be part of the solution. Um, I, I, I really entered seminary with a lot more questions than answers, which is probably mm. how it should be. Uh, right. but, but I had this sense being in the lion's den here in the Capitol that really all of it came back to, to, to a, um, a deeply rooted spiritual crisis that, that we're facing in our world. And I wanted to know more about that. And I couldn't get, I couldn't, I couldn't learn about that going to law school or getting an MBA. Really it's, it's our faith traditions that I think have so much to, to, to tell us in this moment of spiritual crisis. Yeah. I so appreciate your saying that because, um, I, I, I believe as you have said, and, and it really guides our work that this is a season in which people and communities in our world needs the voice of the church, that it is time for the church to stand tall and strong to speak a word of love and grace and mercy and justice and hope and joy into the world, um, not a time for us to be timid. Mm. And, and so I so appreciate that you are leaning in both on the political side and on the faith side. And um, in this season, we've been trying, we've been asking our guests to speak to kind of uh, what is an accurate picture of current reality? Like what what are some of the realities that we're dealing with? And one of the things that keeps coming up is is the reality of polarization mm. um, in our country, in our culture, and and even in our churches, right? And and so um, so I think you you live in the midst of this. You have just described it. Uh, we know it to be true in in politics, of course. And so I'm curious about your take on polarization in our country. What you're seeing, what you're learning and observing. Yeah, it's such a good question, and. Polarization, division, tribalism, to me, feels like the challenge of our time, uh, mm-hmm. and I and I see it every day here in the state capitol, and and feel the pull and the tug of polarization um, to keep us divided. Um, my sense is that you know there are folks at the top, economically, politically, who are invested in keeping us divided from one another, invested in keeping us from recognizing that we have far more in common than, than we do difference. And, and so I think our challenges as Christians, as believers, as people of faith, as Texans and as Americans, is to resist those efforts to pull us apart. You know, so many of, of these culture war fights um, are, are less about solving problems or helping one another, and they're much more about driving a wedge between between neighbors between communities and and so when i talked earlier about um love for neighbor that that for me is put into practice here on on the floor of the texas house you know i i i try to to see the humanity the divine image in those 
with whom I have major disagreements. I'm, I, I'm a member of the Democratic Party for full disclosure. I, I operate in a, a Republican uh, controlled legislature. So to get anything done here, I have to work with people who I have uh, profound disagreements with. And, and that has to be built on genuine love and trust and respect, which is, which is getting harder and harder to establish with one another, given those divisions. Uh, but seminary has honestly helped me do that. Um, Mm -hmm. and has, has, has helped me, you know, once the reason I think that Jesus gave that second commandment, which he said was like the first, is because once you recognize that divine image in yourself, you can't help but recognize it in other people. The parable of the Good Samaritan specifically defines neighbor as someone who's different from us, right? Uh, racially, ethnically, religiously, politically. Um, and, and that's the challenge of the gospel. It's getting harder to hear that call, but it's uh, more necessary than ever in in 2024. James, you've said previously that loving your neighbor is exhausting, especially in a place yeah. like the Texas legislature, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I wonder how how do you sustain that stance of love? Like, where are you finding hope and encouragement from the people that you've struggled to love? Like, are you seeing them come towards you as much as you go towards them? And yeah, what would you say to others as they just try to maintain the sense of loving others in a, in a really hard time? Yeah. Well, and I, let's take it out of politics for a second, because there, I'm sure there are folks listening to your, um, your podcast that don't consider themselves political or partisan, um, or maybe turned off by politics. It's difficult to love your neighbor or love anyone because these forms of ours pass away, right? This is something where I feel like Hinduism and Buddhism have a lot to teach Christians about mm-hmm. impermanence, um, about, uh, about change and, uh, and about our radical interconnections. So love is always, any kind of serious love is going to lead to suffering. I think that's the, the symbol of the cross. Um, and that's true in our own lives, right? When you love someone, um, my my grandmother is suffering from Alzheimer's, and mm-hmm. she's one who means um, more to me than anyone. And you know, her form is passing away, as mine will one day, as all of ours will one day. Mm-hmm. And so, I I think again that the reason that the first commandment is to love God before love loving neighbor is it's a call to see the the kind of divine light that shines from each person, right? And and to fall in love with that rather than. Th- falling in love with these passing forms because that will that will always break our hearts. And so now if we take that into a political context, how can you see past see past the forms, past the temporary kind of rhetoric and beliefs and affiliations and see the divine light shining from each person, right? Uh, many times in in my political party, uh, I'm criticized for working with Republicans. And, and it's seen as uh, a zero-sum choice between being a good progressive and um, working across the aisle. But for me, as a, as a progressive, as a Democrat, the reason I believe that every person is entitled to health care, the reason I believe everyone is entitled to equal rights under the law, is because I believe that every person has infinite worth and value. And that applies 
to my Republican colleagues, mm. right? It applies to the insurrectionists at, Janu- at January 6th at the state at the uh, U.S. Capitol. It applies to those who are committing war crimes around the world. That that is the unsettling part of of the gospel message um, is is how to love those who are unlovable, right? And and so I do that every day here. You know, I there are times I'm I'm a proud pro-choice Christian. Um, and I know there are listeners to your podcast who may have a different uh, position on that, on that difficult topic, but that's, that's where my faith leads me is to a, a position to support abortion rights. And so here in the Texas Capitol, we had a vote where the majority ripped those rights away from every single one of my neighbors with a uterus in the state of Texas. That was a deeply emotional, deeply painful day for me on the floor of the Texas House. But the next day, I had to come back to work and find common ground on issues where I did agree with my Republican colleagues, you know, particularly issues around public education funding and fighting some of these efforts to privatize public schools. The same legislators who, you know, who did what I consider morally reprehensible work on one issue are my partners on the next one. And so that that's a very difficult uh, space to navigate. And, and to do that, I've had to really lean into that recognition of divinity in my, in my colleagues. And, and I'm hoping that, that what I'm going through on the floor of the Texas House may be helpful to those who are navigating these tensions within a church community, um, within a neighborhood, within their own family. Um, I'm sure there are folks who just had Thanksgiving and Christmas with 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 family members who have completely different political views, um, and and so bridging those divides, finding common ground when we can, and working through these profound disagreements is necessary if we're going to maintain that covenant of democracy going into the next decade and the next century. Absolutely. Okay, I want to change tack just a little bit, and I want to ask you about your friendship agenda. Um, yeah. which is, you know, maybe it's the outworking of loving your neighbor, but the last series of this podcast was all about friendship. The whole season was about holy friendships. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. just love to know, um, why friendship, like where yeah. did the friendship agenda come from? And I love that y'all focused on friendship. So much of our culture and, and movies and books, um, are focused on romantic love or focused on familial love. Um, mm-hmm. obviously two of the most deeply moving loves in our in our own lives. But not enough attention is paid to the love between friends, those who aren't related and those who are not romantically involved. And this is important to me as a Texan. Um, you may know that we are the friendly state. That's um, friendship <laughs> is, is actually our official motto as a state. And the word Texas comes from the Caddo Native American word for friend. And that word had uh, had deep political connotations. It didn't mean friend, you know, as someone that you um, share interests with or um, someone you live close to. It actually meant um, someone in a different tribe, um, someone in a, in, a, in a different community. Maybe a better word is ally, um, you know, and that that's that's the meaning of of that particular word. And so when you now think about what the word Texas means or what our motto of friendship means. It means having solidarity with folks who are different from you 
And, and that to me is, is, is going to be the ball game in the coming years. If we're going to save American democracy is how do we maintain solidarity with one another, even when we're different, how do we build friendship across lines of difference? And so suddenly friendship goes from kind of the hanging out with your friends on a Saturday night to now having a profound political meaning. And so I've tried to draw on that history of Texas being the friendly state of, of valuing friendship um, and bring that into our, our, our modern political conversations. What, part of what makes Texas great, I don't know how much time y'all, y'all be able to spend in our state, but what makes, what makes Texas wonderful is that we are this mashup of all different cultures and food and music. You know, everything about our state is this, um, it's, you know, America on steroids. It's the melting pot <laughs> of melting pots, right? And that friendship is what sustains that. Um, it's mm-hmm. what makes Texas great. And those who are trying to divide us, those who are trying to, to demonize um, other people who are different, don't understand Texas. They don't understand what makes us great. And, and by extension, don't understand America and what makes America great. And so that's, that's where you know, friendship comes from for me and, and why I think it informs my agenda here at the state capitol. I see how closely that ties to your faith and what you were saying before about th- this notion of love God, love neighbor is, and that loving neighbor really is about this, this friendship yes. that you're describing that is is not about well, in addition to your best friend that you grew up with and you've loved all your life and and hang out on a Saturday night, but but it it's even beyond that. It's even deeper than that, and it it crosses boundaries, it crosses borders, it it helps us to cross aisles. Wh- whatever the image you want to use that says, how do we move into our our lives and our world in a healing way, and that friendship is at the heart and core of this. And well, and and. And, you know, Jesus told us that that is the greatest love to, mm-hmm. to lay down one's life for your friend. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's, it sounds strange at first. It's such a strange um, way to phrase it. And he, you know, he says he no longer calls us a student. He calls us a friend. So friendship, and, and I love that you use the imagery of crossing lines of difference or, or boundaries. And that's often the story in the gospel is, is Jesus and his followers crossing these boundaries that mm-hmm. seemed insurmountable, but turn out to be very permeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that, that to me is what friendship in, in this sense is all about. I want to bring us into a conversation that, uh, you know, has the potential to be hard, but we've already been to hard places. And yeah. I think part of what you're doing is you're, you know, this this commute that you're making between church and state <laughs> daily um, and and in your life. Um, uh, I, I just, uh, what I'd like to do is lean into a place where faith and politics finds itself sometimes merged and mashed in uh, significant ways in our country right now, and that's this notion of Christian nationalism. And one of the our friends and, and thought leaders that we rely on uh, quite a bit, Dr. Gail Rendell, has helped us understand in with some real depth the growing danger of Christian nationalism in our country, and, and as people of faith, what it means to show up 
from a place of deep conviction and faith in political spheres and where the edges are of that versus Christian nationalism. And so you, as a person of deep faith, bring this, I think, unique and important voice and in this. And so I'd, I'd love, I'm inviting you to speak into where you are offering uh wisdom and thought around religious pluralism, Christian nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about what your message is there? Yeah. You know, I've, I've so much of the work that I've done here at the state Capitol is in combating Christian nationalism. Um, there was a, a bill to mandate that the 10 commandments be posted in every classroom. There was a bill to replace uh, guidance counselors in schools with untrained, unsupervised religious chaplains there was a bill to privatize public schools, take money out of those schools to give to private Christian schools. Nothing against private Christian schools, but uh, we have limited tax dollars here. And, and my belief is that they should go to, to funding schools that serve everybody. Uh, and those are our neighborhood public schools. So in a very real, tangible sense, Christian nationalism is on the rise here in Texas. And, and nationally, that's also the case. Mm-hmm. Um, two years ago, we saw... Christian nationalists storm the U.S. Capitol, hurting police officers while carrying crosses and signs reading Jesus saves. A year ago, we had Christian nationalists on the U.S. Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade, allowing states like Texas to outlaw abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. And, and as I mentioned, you're seeing Christian nationalists trying to dismantle the institution of public education in states like Texas. So this is very real. Um, and something that we as Christians must confront and resist at every turn. And I think as uh, as believers, we have to come to terms with the fact that this is a cancer on our religion. And until we confess the sin that is Christian nationalism and exercise it from our churches, our religion is going to do a lot more harm than good uh, in the coming years in, in the United States and across the world. I believe there is nothing Christian about Christian nationalism. Um, Jesus started a universal movement based on mutual love. Christian nationalism is a sectarian movement based on universal hatred. Jesus includes, Christian nationalism excludes. Uh, Jesus liberates, Christian nationalism controls. Jesus saves, and Christian nationalism kills. He, He told us we would know them by their fruits. And and those fruits have become painfully obvious to Americans, you know, across the spectrum. And so, you know, I I think it's first it's important for us to understand where this is coming from, and that it's not a new phenomenon, right? We are seeing it rear its ugly head, but this is something um, as old as the church. Uh, As y'all are well aware, the first Christians didn't didn't call themselves Christians; they called themselves the Way. Right, they were living out this this new vision of what it meant to be human, given to them by their crucified teacher. They were a peculiar people who didn't participate in the economy, in the military, in the culture. The Book of Acts tells us that those first Christians were persecuted for turning the world upside down. But you know, three hundred years after Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire, Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official state religion of that very same empire, right? So in my, in my understanding of our church's history, Constantine was the first 
Christian nationalist. Hmm. And, and ever since, the powers that be have been taming, uh, domesticating, uh, diluting Christianity into something more palatable, uh, pro-war, pro-wealth, pro-white supremacy. At every turn, there have been Christians who read the gospel and, and try to live out that original vision in, in opposition to the powerful forces trying to tranquilize our religion and, and trying to use our religion to, um, to consolidate their own power. And so that, I think it's important if we're going to resist Christian nationalism today, we have to understand where it's come from and the damage it has done to our faith for, you know, 1500 years. And so this is not new and it's incumbent upon us as Christians to follow the example of, of those first members of the early church and, and the brave Christians from Dorothy Day to Dr. King um, who have tried to, to truly follow Jesus even within a, a corrupted you know, Christian nationalist uh, worldview. It's so helpful to hear you very clearly distinguish between what you understand to be the Christian faith and the gospel call and how Christian nationalism gets played out. And um, and and that feels important to me because we can often do an either or kind of thing in our head um, and good and bad and and that kind of thing. So you lay that against what you've said about, which I believe, and that is this um, kind of generous heart of love that sees every person as a beloved child of God. Yep. And so how we approach each other is not to play into that dualism, but rather to see the the cancer, if you will, and to mm-hmm. say, how do we combat that? Yeah. Um, and and okay, so that said, I I suspect it can creep in in really subtle ways in our congregation, in ways we think are of faith and that are tied to the gospel, but maybe. Um, are are more influenced by the culture mm-hmm. than by the gospel call. And so I wonder what steps you think faith leaders can take in their own context and in congregations to um, to love well, mm-hmm. um, but also not to buy into a sort of cultural, Christian nationalism that you're describing. Yeah, well, I think yes. Let's let's start by taking the, the log out of our own eye um, <laughs> and, and uh, recognizing that there aren't there are no bad people, just bad ideas, um, <laughs> and those bad ideas infect all of us to mm-hmm. some degree or another. And and to me, you know, Christian nationalism is rooted in a desire for control, mm-hmm. and. I, I, I struggle with that desire every day in my own life too, as I'm sure y'all do as well. Yeah, Lord um, have mercy. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the Christian nationalist ideology is one built on fear and, and therefore the response to fear is, is an attempt to control uh, yourself, others, and the world around you, right? Controlling what you read, controlling what you say, controlling what you do with your body, controlling where you travel, 
that that control to me is diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a gospel of freedom and trust and faith. One of my, you know, there are many, many, many verses of scripture that bring me comfort, but probably none bring me more comfort than when Jesus takes all of his early followers to a hilltop, mm-hmm. um, which I, I've never been to the Holy Land, but I, from what I've read, I think it looks a lot like the Texas Hill Country for those who've ever been to the Hill Country. You know, it's kind of uh, dry and rocky, but but covered in wildflowers and and birds and the beauty of nature. So Jesus is taking people out of their economy, out of their culture, out of their human systems, bringing them to nature, to, to this hillside, and pointing out the lilies of the field mm-hmm. and the birds of the air. And telling them not to worry, not to control, to trust in God, uh, trust in love. That, that I mean, the entire, um, uh, all of the teachings and, um, and, and the, the passion and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus all to me point to that radical trust. Trust in God, in love, in the life process. And, and to me, that's why... Christian nationalism um, is is such a threat to the gospel, because instead of trusting God, instead of trusting love, it's calling us to take control ourselves mm. in a chaotic world, in a scary world, and that that is not something that you know Christian nationalists with a capital C, a capital N, fall fall victim to. It's also something we all fall victim to every single day. It's 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 really hard to have the faith that Jesus is calling us to have. Um, and instead, it's a lot easier to believe in your own human agency, in your own human power. And that's what I think we have to be on the lookout for in our churches. Even if you feel like, you know, we're an inclusive church, you know, we, we, we're, we stand opposed to Christian nationalism. I think what's what's more helpful is to look inward and and recognize the ways in which that Christian nationalist ideology infects all of us, uh, regardless of where we stand on that, on that particular spectrum. Yeah, that's really helpful. So this feels really important, James, and I appreciate the ways that you're helping our leaders, our listeners, who are primarily leaders in the church, clergy and lay, think about what this looks like in their own context. Um, I want to pivot a little bit and, you know, the, the third piece of, of, Jesus's commandment that he gives to us, you know, love God, love neighbor as self, right, is this how we care for ourselves. And I I can't help but think about this very hard work that you're doing of living in to your faith and your call from God in a context that is where every single day, as you have described, you are... um, drawn into living that out in a way where you also face resistance. And anytime we face resistance, um, it's it's a bit exhausting. It, it wears on us. You're in the midst of a re-election campaign. I know how public that gets, and people say things that are unkind um, for whatever reason. And um, so how do you stay grounded 
humble. I mean, you're amazing to visit with. You're just so real. And I mean, obviously, but you know, just um, such a humble spirit. And so how do you keep your ego and ambition in check? How do you pursue your work in the midst of resistance? How do you care for yourself? These are the kinds of things I'm wondering about. Yeah. Um, well, one, it's, I think it's important to recognize that, um, my struggles are fairly minor compared to Mm -hmm. many people's struggles. I get to work every day in the air conditioning. I work in a building surrounded by armed security. Um, so, and I have plenty of perks and and benefits Mm -hmm. that go along with my position that many people, including a lot of your listeners who are doing equally important work don't get. Um, so I want to acknowledge that up front. There's a, a tremendous amount of, of privilege that, that comes with, with the job that I have, even though it is difficult. But I, I also think it's helpful to remember that our, our gospel is built for tough times, hmm. right? Um, it was first delivered in, in difficult circumstances to oppressed people living under an oppressive empire. It has been used to inspire and ground and motivate people working through all kinds of oppression and strife and suffering, including in the United States, including very recently. And so, you know, to me, I think we we have to remember that we're all working on the same project, which is to realize the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That That is our, our shared work. And, and it relates to what we were just talking about earlier, because Jesus didn't come to establish a Christian nation. Uh, I have no doubt that Jesus could have established a Christian theocracy, but I don't think love would ever do that. Hmm. Uh, I, I think the closest thing we have to the kingdom of heaven is a multiracial, multicultural, multireligious democracy where power is shared with one another. The, the kingdom of God is, is not like any kingdom we've ever known, right? It's, instead of a throne, Jesus sits at a table. Instead of a, a war horse, Jesus rides a donkey. Instead of a sword, Jesus picks up a cross. So this, this kingdom of God inverts the power dynamics of all the kingdoms of the world, and inclu- including professional politics, hmm. right? In this kingdom, true strength is vulnerability. True status is equality. True wealth is sharing. And we're called to to realize this kingdom not by force, but with faith, with that trust that we were just talking about moments earlier. And I think that's because Jesus anticipated that in a world of fear, we would all grasp at something other than God, right? We would, we would grasp onto our own egos we would grasp on to money um, or um, or violence or power, political power, right? That which I think is probably the greatest idol of them all. Right. Um, and and the gospel is full of stories of Jesus resisting that very idol of power, of control, right? Whether it's in the in the wilderness when tempted by the devil with power, whether it's with his um, you know bumbling disciple disciples who who are constantly asking how they can. You know, be better than one another and and have more power than than one another. The the gospel is a challenge to that traditional notion of power, and and it's something that challenges me every day um, and helps keep my own 
ego in check and and my own desire for control and for power. Because I, I know there there are good-hearted people listening to your podcast right now who have I'm sure have thought if I could just be king for a day, um, I could fix all this. Right? <laughs> I could solve all these problems if I could just have all the power. And, and that's um, that's something we're explicitly called not to do. Something we're called to resist within ourselves and. And so to me, that is, that's the, the best way to stay humble, to stay sane, and to stay committed to the project, to the work, because we have to do both, right? Um, there's that great Jewish saying, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but about how you're, you're not called to um, get rid of all of the world's grief, but you're, you're also not allowed to abandon the work. And, and so those two things have to be done in tandem. We both have to to stay healthy and grounded and, and take care of ourselves while still uh, staying committed to the, the shared work that that we're all um, all privileged to be engaged in. I really love, you've got some real quotes in what you've just said, like the gospel, you know, like our gospel was built for hard times. I just like, oh, it's so true. And oh, we can take comfort from that. And I really appreciate it. Anyway, I, I want to ask you a question about where you're finding hope. And I just want to go back. We started this season. The very first guest was Dr. Meg Wheatley. And she uh, she said change on a global scale is not where we need to be focusing. Like She doubled down on the difference we can make locally. Her language mm-hmm. is about creating islands of sanity where we can help each other become the best, the best human being possible. Right? How do we become our best selves? And so when we yeah. watch going on at, in the country yeah. at a national level, it can, can be overwhelming. But I'd like to know what's the hope that you think we can lean into yeah. at the local level? And could you share some stories maybe from your own district of the way people are making a difference and kind of helping create a different, to create the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven in your own yeah. In your own district, I'd love to know. Just yeah, your stories of hope. Yeah, uh, and such that's such good advice because not only are you more effective locally, but it's much more nourishing to our soul because mm-hmm. you you're interacting with um, real flesh and blood human beings on the ground in the real world. There's uh, technology has done a lot of good. Uh, not someone who who um, is is anti technology, but. We should also recognize how technology has kind of um, removed our, our ourselves from our own bodies, um, from our own tangible reality. I don't think we, as with our little monkey brains, are, are meant to to um, to absorb all of the world's grief when we open up our little phones. Right? Um, it's too much for our our evolution to handle. Um, it's too much for our finite selves to handle. Um, but our little our little pocket demons, every time we open them up, mm. they they expose us to a, a a world full of suffering. And that that is unsustainable. And, and again, I think it's you know the incarnation, um, the mystery of the incarnation can help us here because God came into the world in a very particular circumstance, right? Born into a Jewish body from a Jewish woman in in a particular, um, circumstance on particular land, and and so are all of, so are, so are we, right? Um, all of us are in a particular community um, with particular people, and so we have to be committed to that, right? There's such a temptation to to be universal 
and and act universally and and take on universal problems. But we as finite beings are are incapable of that. We we have to be um, engaged and committed to our particular circumstances. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's that's exactly what Jesus did, and it's exactly what we should do, following in His footsteps. And, and so, to answer your second question about about what I'm seeing, I I as a former educator, I, I take it upon myself to visit every single school campus in my legislative district. Um, so every elementary school, every middle school, every high school, every alternative school, and and be able to visit with educators and with students in those schools uh, in my community. Because, I, you know, although I was an educator, I don't claim to know all the struggles that teachers are going through in 2024. Um, I was in the classroom about a decade ago. And so it's a helpful learning process for me. But it's also selfish because I am constantly inspired by the work that public school teachers do in in my community and across the state of Texas under very difficult circumstances because of the ways our our communities have changed because of globalization and technology and income inequality our schools our local neighborhood schools are in, in some ways the last pillar less standing in our communities right there used to have a local business that cared about local workers you used to have local hospitals with a local doctor who had a relationship with, with the patients in a community, um, used to have temples and churches and synagogues and mosques. Those have, as we all are well aware, have declined over the last few decades as well. So the last pillar that's really left standing is the, is the school. And the school has, as a result of that those changes, the schools have been asked to do so much more than they used to do. It's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic now. The school is in charge of feeding kids, charge of nutrition. It's in charge of of physical and mental and spiritual health, so much more than I think the the designers of our education system ever intended. Um, but those teachers with limited pay, um, with limited time, are accepting that challenge on behalf of our kids. And and I I mean I can't tell you the number of teachers who are buying school supplies with their with their own money, who are staying well after the workday ends to to take care of their kids. And, and sadly, because we have neglected to do anything about gun violence in this country, teachers who are putting their own bodies in in between kids and and gunmen who are trying to to commit horrific mass murders on school campuses. Some of you, uh, some of your listeners may remember the two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, who who gave their lives to protect their kids. There was a principal in in Iowa um, who sacrificed his life to protect his kids during a shooting. So when I I get discouraged, when I get tired, when I'm ready to give up, when I flirt with hopelessness, I always think about the the educators in my district, in my neighborhood, who every day are giving of themselves for their kids, for uh, the, those families and for the next generation. Um, and there are, you know, um, in a time of Christian nationalism and, and mega church preachers, I think there are very few, um, there are, if, if I'm thinking of the people who truly embody Christ in our communities, it's, I think teachers have to be at the top of that, top of that list because they are, they are truly doing the Lord's work um, every single day without without fame, without recognition, without uh, wealth. And they're an example, I think, to all of us. Yeah. 
it's a powerful witness and and really as you say a, a powerful uh, testimony to hope and yeah. you were talking and I just got chills thinking about the sacrifices and the commitment and the dedication and the witness and so and thank you for making those visits I know yeah. that that is a profound manifestation of support. So thank you for the ways that you do that. So we're asking all of our guests a final question this season. And so as you consider the realities we've named and that you've described and the leadership to which you've been called, what do you want to be remembered for? (laughs) I love this question. It's such a difficult (laughs) question. Um, You know, I think I'll, there is, especially in politics, there is an obsession on how individual politicians will be remembered with legacy. Sure. Um, and in some ways, I think that's a little harmful. Um, mm-hmm. And it's and it's a centering of the ego um, mm-hmm. to to wonder how you, as a as an individual self, an impermanent self, are going to be remembered after you leave. And the reality is that none of us will be remembered ultimately, right? Um, even the greatest emperors and kings and, and pharaohs um, are eventually forgotten by history. And I at least take a little comfort in that, right? Uh, <laughs> that no matter how great your works are, uh, no matter what monuments you build, ultimately you'll pass away like everything else. Um, and so I guess you know, the, only, the only one I want to remember me is, is God. And mm-hmm. And I hope in the words of Matthew 25, when I get up to those pearly gates, um, I'm going to hear those words of well done, good and faithful servant. Um, yeah. And and to me, that that kind of trust and faith in love and in life and in God is what I strive to have. I fail every day at it <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and will continue to fail at it. But my hope is that at the end of the day, my trust will... Um, will win out and will be remembered by God. And I'll be, I'll be thanked for my service one last time. Mm-hmm. Well, by the grace of God, may it be so <laughs> for you and for all of us. So James, thank you for your time today, for your faithful yes every single day and the ways that you are living out your faith. I'm grateful, grateful to you. Thanks. Thank you all. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Learning and Innovation Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners, visit our website at ignitingimagination.org, and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.